Tonight's scripture is Isaiah 29, 9-16. It says, Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, and has closed your eyes and covered your heads. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. When they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Uh, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us, hmm. you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Let's pray. Lord God, we recognize you as our creator, God, and we dare not utter to you that we were not formed by you. We know that that statement and that lifestyle reeks of foolishness that is an abomination in your sight. And so, God, we confess where we may have dipped into that lifestyle where we pretended like we were our own functional gods. And we repent of that sin, putting our trust firmly in your hands to call us into something greater than ourselves. For Lord, we do not have wisdom in and of ourselves. Lord, if we claim to have wisdom in and of ourselves, you, you say you destroy it. That if we if we have discernment in and of ourselves, that it is hidden. And so, God, I, I pray that we would just humbly submit before you our lives as a living and holy sacrifice, that it would be our spiritual worship to obey you and be your vessels to be used to your glory, that God your wisdom would be on display in our folly. So God, would you help us to even grapple with that truth tonight as we continue our series through 1 Corinthians, that Lord, uh, you would bless us with open minds and soft hearts to hear what you have to say about yourself, about us, and what is revealed to this world. God, would you be with us to inform us and transform us more into the image of Jesus Christ tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are now three weeks into our sermon series on 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we've learned that the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church in Corinth after hearing that they were dealing with divisions, divisions among them. He wrote the letter as a reproof, but interestingly enough, he starts out the letter very uh, encouraging. 
He reminds them that they are saints, holy ones, set apart to be sanctified for God's purpose. And then he appeals to them to pursue gospel unity through the name of Jesus Christ, together with all the other saints. And we saw last week how powerful the name of Jesus is to save us from our sins, but also to unite all who have called upon that name to save them from their sins. Uh, Jesus not only reconciles us to himself, but he reconciles us to all our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the way that we pursue Unity is by prioritizing the gospel above all else. Paul makes this appeal to the Corinthians, and then he pivots to this topic of wisdom, as we saw in verse 17 last week. Uh, And we'll read it again along with the rest of our passage tonight. So hopefully you found 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 17 through 31, just to pick up where we left off last week. God's word says this. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He goes on. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are, being, who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being, no flesh, might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness 
and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, humble us and keep us humble that we would learn of your wisdom in our folly. Bless us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I've entitled tonight's sermon, The Wisdom in Our Folly. The Wisdom in Our Folly. Paul recognized that the reason the church in Corinth was dealing with these divisions was because of their tendency to prize the wisdom and teachings of certain preachers, men. Paul being one of them. Apollos being another. Peter being another. The Corinthians had made a bad habit of glorying in men. And this was typical of the culture there in Corinth. It was a city steeped in pagan idolatry and philosophy. Many made a living teaching their path to wisdom. Interestingly enough, it was standard practice to share your thoughts, earn followers, and gain a platform. The people of Corinth craved influence either for themselves or for their teacher of choice. And I'm struck by how similar that sounds to some of what we see today. We rally around our favorite Instagram influencer or YouTube celebrity or Twitch streamer or Facebook personality. We buy their merch, we engage with their content and convince ourselves they care about us and impact our lives for the better. And then not only that, we get other people in on that. Do you see how great he is? Don't you wanna be just like her? And we get swept up into the glory of men just like the Corinthians. And what Paul would have for us tonight is not to glory in man, but the glory in Christ because of the wisdom of God. So I want to give you three aspects of God's wisdom in our folly. Three aspects of God's wisdom in our folly. The first, there is wisdom in God's foolish message. There is wisdom in God's foolish message. And you're like, whoa, cross. Can you say that? Well, look what Paul says. Starting again in verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly. The word of the cross, not, not talking about me, Talking about the cross of Christ, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart 
Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? All right, let's be clear. The word of the cross there is Paul's summary phrase of what we know to be the gospel, right? We started to kind of see that in verse 17 as well, right? Where he talks about the cross of Christ being the gospel. That's his summary phrase. And it is the message that all born-again Christians have taken on as their own. That we believe by faith that Jesus is the Son of God who lived the life we could not live and died the death that we deserved and then rose from the grave three days later to defeat sin, hell, and death itself. That is the gospel. And that's what we cling to. That's what we prioritize. And Paul, a man inspired by the Holy Spirit, as he writes to the church in Corinth 2,000 some odd years ago, calls this message folly. The gospel is deemed a foolish message, although not by Paul, but by those who are perishing. What an eerie word. Perishing. Maybe the Greek can help us out here. Maybe it doesn't mean what we think it means. Maybe, it, okay, if we get into the original language here of the text, it literally means the word of the cross is to the ones being destroyed, stupidity. If you want to get literal in the original language, that's what it is basically voicing. People may not say it out loud, but they definitely believe it. The gospel seems foolish, stupid, not worth their time. All the while, they are flippantly rejecting the only message that can save them from perishing, being destroyed, being eternally separated from God and everything that is good in this universe. And can we just feel the gravity of their grave error in that? That there are people that we love, friends, families, coworkers, who do not believe the gospel that we live out and proclaim. And they suffer for it. They suffer for it. It is folly to those who are perishing. So we pray, God, would you save sinners around us? Would you soften their hearts to hear your message and receive it? In your wisdom, would you use what seems foolish to save souls? We pray. We pray to God that he will save people we care about because he is, the, he is the only one who has the power to do it. The only one. Isn't that what Paul says about us? To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. Not the wisdom of man. God, I've seen you do it in me. Do it again. Do it for my friends. Do it for my loved one. Do it for my enemy even. 
But where is the wisdom in this folly message? Paul quotes the words of the prophet Isaiah, which we read from in our scripture reading. Isaiah, uh, to give you context, is in the middle of presenting this divine mystery who blinds those who prefer not to see. When he says the wisdom and discernment of man will be destroyed. In other words, God is showing up his creation with a message they cannot and will not comprehend because their own wisdom and discernment betrays them. This is why Paul poses rhetorical questions immediately after he quotes Isaiah. Who, who would boast in their own wisdom after God's declaration that he will destroy that wisdom, the wisdom of the wise? The only thing that can rescue us is the wisdom and power of God in the saving message of Jesus Christ. But how is that message delivered? The second aspect of God's wisdom in our folly. There is wisdom in God's foolish method. There is wisdom in God's foolish method. Whoa, cross again? How can you call God's method foolish? It isn't me. Look at what Paul says. Verses 21 through 25. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of our preaching to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There is wisdom in God's foolish method. Paul begins here by making a solid theological point about the revelation of God. And he kind of gets back to this in Romans uh, as well. But he says, God does not make himself automatically knowable in a salvific way. He makes himself knowable in a, in a general way, and that's what he says in Romans 1, right? That we, can, we all can see that there is a God, but we can't know him savingly unless he acts, unless he reveals. No human intuition, no human knowledge, no human instinct gets you to believe in the cross of Christ. Instead, God chooses to save by way of the folly of our preaching. That this is his master plan. That through the proclamation of the gospel, through the folly of our preaching, he would save sinners. And it's not just when you have a platform. It's in whatever your platform is as you preach the sermon of your life. It's the folly of your preaching. You're his master plan. This tears down any testimony that says, I've been a Christian since I was born. 
No, you haven't. That's not true. Don't say that because it's false. You may have grown up in a Christian household where your parents took you to church every Christmas and Easter. You prayed when someone was in the hospital. You maybe even flipped open your Bible when you had nothing better to do, but that doesn't get you to Christ crucified. That doesn't get you to a Christ crucified way of life. That gets you to a dry, mundane, lifeless, moral, therapeutic deism, which isn't the same as radical Christianity. You cannot stand to actually reckon with the truth of a gospel sermon because it seems complete and utter foolishness. People aren't looking for a gospel sermon. They're not. Paul even addresses this. He says, the Jews demand signs and wonders. And isn't that what we see in the Gospels repeatedly in Jesus' interactions with the Jews and, and the Pharisees? Like, give us more signs and wonders. More bread, Jesus, come on, keep it coming. And none of it was good enough. Greeks are seeking wisdom, and that's exactly what Paul is reproofing in the Corinthians. But what's truly ironic What's truly ironic is that God gives both the Jews and the Greeks exactly what they want, but not at all how they want it. Christ crucified. Signs, wonders, wisdom. It's there in Christ, crucified. But a Messiah king, naked and nailed, defeated and displayed, on a cross is outright offensive to a Jew. A great philosopher whose way of life led him to a Roman cross is absurd and nonsensical to the Greeks. They want nothing to do with it. You see, the gospel is preached and packaged as a stumbling block and foolishness when it is actually the power and the wisdom of God. Amen. In this, we see what Paul delivers very simply. God is wiser than men. God is stronger than men. He offers them exactly what they demand and seek out, yet they reject it and discard it as folly. Wow! We see the wisdom of God, the wisdom in God's foolish message, and the wisdom in His foolish method. But what does He use to display it? Who hears the message through the method? So we see the third aspect of God's wisdom in our folly. There is wisdom in God's foolish material. There is wisdom in God's foolish material. And this is where we all utter a collective ouch. Because with all due respect, we are the foolish material God uses to display his wisdom. For his glory. Look again at verses 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being or no flesh might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one who boasts, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul turns the truth that there is wisdom in our folly towards his audience, towards the Corinthian church, in order to personalize that truth. And so I want to do the same. Where were you when the gospel met you? Where were you when the gospel met you? You weren't wise by worldly standards. You weren't powerful. You weren't born into nobility. None of these abilities or privileges move you into a right relationship with God. Rather, these are the ones God chooses. It is the foolish, the weak, the low, and the despised. And that should comfort us. When God chose us, he chose nobodies. At least that's how I was viewed when the gospel found me. And God's reason for choosing someone such as me, Paul tells us that it's, it's so that no human being, literally in the Greek, no flesh might boast in his holy presence. And here's what we need to grapple with tonight. That reason is good enough. That reason alone is good enough. Why? Because only God is worthy of worship. Isn't that Paul's main argument against these divisions that popped up in the church in Corinth? The church in Corinth was glorying in men when none of them, none of those teachers could boast in the presence of the Lord. God is the only one who receives our worship. He is the only one who deserves it. And truth be told, he's the only one who can handle worship. Human beings go crazy when we are adored by the masses. You don't believe me, just look at any child actor and how they grew up and where they are now. Human beings can't handle the worship that other human beings direct towards them. Being admired by a mob of millions is devastating. So I wonder, why do so many of us crave it? We can't handle it. And the comforting thing is we were never designed to. God is the only one who warrants our worship, and he knows it. He designed us with that in mind. 
We were always meant to reflect his glory. When he creates Adam and Eve in his image, he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. His plan is that he would see his glory fill the earth as he sends them out. It's always been his plan. The plan hasn't changed. God is foremost for himself, and that's actually a really good thing for us. He isn't some cosmic egomaniac lording over us for kicks and giggles. That's not our God. He is an all-wise, good, and loving God who rightfully beckons us to adore him forever and ever into eternity. That's our God. Why? Well, let's see how God being foremost for his glory actually benefits us. Verses 30 and 31. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The result of God choosing us, those who are foolish, weak, low, and despised, is that we are in Christ, who became to us Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. These are big words that tell us the wisdom of God is on display in our past, in our present, and in our future. In our past, Jesus became righteousness to us. He became righteousness to us in that he has declared us righteous in his blood. There's a point in time where we believed savingly upon the good news of Jesus Christ and he adorned us in his blood, washed, cleansed us of our sin, justified us, declared us righteous in his sight. And that's in our past. And it's not going anywhere. It's assurance. God's wisdom on display in our present Jesus became sanctification to us in that he is currently making us more righteous. It's an ongoing thing in the present. We never arrive at that, right? He's continually making us more and more like Jesus and then will one day glorify us in the new heavens and the new earth when we have new bodies, bodies that don't grow old, that don't get ill. It's an ongoing thing to make us more like Jesus. And it happens in the present. It says wisdom on display in the present. And then wisdom on display in the future. Jesus became redemption for us in that we will one day be redeemed from sin entirely. And we look forward to that day when he will redeem us and restore us forever and ever. If we are to boast at all, we must boast in the Lord. Not in any man, and certainly not in ourselves. The important truth in this passage is that God is wise to save those who are foolish and weak and low and despised for his glory and our good. Which brings us to our main point tonight. 
if God's wisdom is on display in our folly, then we must play the fool. If God's wisdom is on display in our folly, then we must play the fool. What do I mean by that? Well, I need to explain the difference between a fool proper and a fool bearer. And I am helped by Oz Guinness, who puts it this way. The fool proper is the person whom God says is a fool, who, lacking a fear of the Lord, lacks wisdom and is truly a fool. But a fool bearer is different. They are foolish in the eyes of the world, not God. And we can see the difference between these two in two different Bible passages. The first is Psalm 14, 1, which says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now, compare that to what Paul says later in 1 Corinthians, but chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, he says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Full proper, full bearer. Paul bears that label of fool for the sake of Christ. The fact of the matter is, no matter what you, no matter what, you will be seen as a fool. Who would you rather be seen as a fool by? Who would you rather be seen as a fool by? Our triune God or the world? Full bearer or full proper? If the message is viewed as foolish, so are those who believe it and those who proclaim it. But the good news is that God uses what is viewed as foolish, weak, low, and despised for his glory and our good. He's done it time and time again. Here are a few uh, examples. King David danced with joy before the Lord and his own wife dismissed him as an idiot. Isaiah was called to walk around naked and barefoot for three years. It's a prophet of God. Prophet Jeremiah was called to put a wooden yoke around his neck and be a laughingstock for a generation. Then, of course, the prophet Hosea was called to marry a prostitute. But there's one more full bearer the greatest full bearer of all. That's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was dismissed by his own family as insane. He was made an object of derision by the Roman guard. He wore a crown, but it was a crown of thorns. He was flogged and then mocked all the way to the cross. And before he went on to bear the sins of the world, he bore the folly of it. 
So if you want to know, how do I play the fool? If God's wisdom is on display in my folly, how on earth do I play the fool? Look no further than Jesus on his way to the cross. Don't fight it. Be courageous. Take a stand. Receive ridicule. Suffer joyfully. Pray humbly. Forgive mercifully. If you want to know how to play the fool, look to Jesus. When Jesus commands his disciples to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him, he does not call us into anything that he hasn't already lived himself. The folly he calls you to bear in this life is something he is all too familiar with. So that if you are declared foolish by the world, hey, you're in good company. Because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was too. If God's wisdom is on display in our folly, then we must play the fool to the glory of God.